Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pope Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry, known the world over as Chasing Artwork. I'm Gregory Kamichuk, known in some Google boxes as GMB Kamichuk. I'd like to inform our dear listeners that we've got most of our super controversial conversation out of the way, off the record, and Justin and I are going to plow forward with only positivity and good <laughs> thoughts related to art and writing moving forward in our futures. Isn't that right, Justin? Shouldn't we be talking, like, isn't controversy, doesn't that make good podcasts? Shouldn't we save all that juicy, opinionated stuff for for the airwaves? I don't know. I think there's enough of it. <laughs> Everyone's angry about everything and yeah. rightly so in many cases. And I just don't want to, there's not enough people just reminding people that if they are being kind, if they are being useful, and if they're doing their best, that that's okay for right now. That's enough. Be kind, be useful, yeah. do your best. Do your best. Right? Just mm-hmm. do your best. And uh, <laughs> and your time will come, right? The time uh, to shine will come. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you and I have been texting about a little bit this week is the idea that there is a right time for certain pieces of art, a right time for certain stories, a right time for when to release something. You know, you and I have a back catalog that's kind of building up now as uh, uh, as we're not able to take it out to shows. And uh, wondering how and when the right time for the right thing is, I think is a favorite pastime of most creative people and I'm here to weigh in with my opinion that it's never up to you. You never know when that right time is. So just keep making it, keep putting it out there. See, I was thinking not as much the right time, but the right arena. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, I was thinking about all the different places that I've tried to promote and sell my artwork. Um, this week, for example, I was part of TCAF. Um, which was just an online convention for this year because of what's going on. For the dear um, the Toronto Comics Arts Festival. Yes, which is an amazing um, book festival that, uh, that was, would happen in Toronto, it would happen in a big bookstore downtown Toronto, and it was free to get into. So it would see crazy awesome attendance because it was free to enter, there was no entry fee. Um, and then it was really hard to get into as, a, as an artist or publisher um, so you needed to have a published book happen that year and it was still juried. And so like, I think it took me four or five tries to, to get in. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of a big deal to, to be there, but, uh, yeah, this year I'm, I'm going to throw a little bit of shade TCAF's way. They had the most, and uh, again, it's, they this were doing really their best, Justin. To be they, were in this. Doing their best. they were doing their best. But I've never had so much trouble uploading my artwork to a online shop setup. Whatever program or whatever service they were using crashed so many times that I not only stopped and restarted three times, I just got too frustrated and gave up. And keep in mind, I have more than 10 years' experience of uploading my artwork to the internet, and I could not deal with uploading five products to whatever little store front thing they had built in. And then finally, on the third attempt, I finally emailed somebody and they replied, oh yeah, that's down. 
just email us everything. We'll put it in. So I so they were they were trying people, hard. But. I happen to know that a few people that are at least T Calf adjacent in the organizers uh, listen to our podcast fairly regularly. So I think it's oh, fair no. to, it's fair to vent your frustration. What is a actionable uh, criticism? What is an action that could be taken? If this carries on for a whole another year, what's a what's a piece of advice you would give? Because, like you say, you've got a lot of experience with other formats like this. Is there one that you well, just think works great that you could point them at? Well, I'm gonna. I'm of the controversial opinion that online conventions don't work. Right. I, I've I've signed up for a couple of them, and they certainly haven't worked for me. Um, all my, the friends, my close friends that have tried it have, have not had great experiences as well. Like when I, when I sign up for an online convention, you put your products up on their storefront. Um, and then people are supposed to go and buy through that portal. Right. Right. But people aren't, people don't seem to be going there and getting it. So then it's up to me to promote that event, like go here and check out Right, all but, the already have but a, why am I... You already have your own website that does all that. I have my own website. I have my own store. So why am I putting in... Why am I giving them money first to like host me as an artist and then putting in more effort to promote that event and get people to go there only to be linked right back to my online store right. and do it that way? It just seems because I have my own store, because I have my own website... Why am I even bothering with online conventions? As far as I can tell, I've gotten no real benefit out of any of them. And like, you know, I feel like it's conventions are in a really hard spot. Like if if you run a convention, like, you know, Dan with FanQuest, like it's really, it's not a fun time to be running an event that its whole goal is to get a bunch of people together in one place, you know? So I, I don't have an answer. Yeah. But from my perspective, it's very frustrating that I've tried so many and gotten nothing out of them yeah it's interesting there's a perspective that i see um the ones that i have participated in that have worked the best as far as driving people that seem to move actually the needle on on say book sales mm -hmm. are the ones that don't lead with any kind of shop they're just right. creating programming like here's an interview of creators here's a bunch of people sharing their know-how here's and then people who are watching and listening are actually connecting in a way that, while not the same as a regular convention where you can be face to face with a person and really feel what it is they're trying to um, uh, project, it at least feels like you are engaged with the active participatory feeling of creators talking about their work rather than just yet another website with a buy option. And, right. Right. It's. It's true. Yeah, so any of those online spaces where it's just another place to have a shopping cart digitally isn't really that's not why people go to conventions. I mean, yes, you can sell a lot of stuff there, but that's it's a byproduct of that connection to the creators that is creating those sales, not the sales themselves, right? Mhm. Mm and I we've I've been part of two in the the past little while and I think you've been part of quite a few as well those like kind of panel discussions or you know there's five or more people in a zoom call and then the people can watch and ask questions and i those are fun i really like those and i think those are 
are much better than let's set up some kind of virtual marketplace and plop a bunch of artist websites on there and then try to drive people towards that just for a weekend. And then that doesn't, that system doesn't seem to be working for me. I much prefer, yeah, putting together some, some great workshops, some great panel discussions, getting some Q and A's in there. Like that seems to be, um, you know, seems to get some momentum rather than just another online store. And I'm, I'm not trying to, to throw shade or, or be mean to these conventions that are trying that. I don't, I don't have a solution. I don't know what else they, they could be do, doing. They're, they're kind of, they're hurting these days. So if at first you don't succeed scenario too, right? Like they're trying it. Yeah. We've got a year where they're everyone's tried it. it at least once. And I think yeah. each of those organizations has figured out, no, it doesn't work. One of our local shows, um, our um, anime show that we Icon. have here, uh, Icon, didn't they were going to do another one and then realize that not really you know it's not really working it doesn't create the community experience that they're hoping they hoped to create with it and so they decided not to do it and they just said you know we're putting all our efforts into the best show we can make when we can have a show in person uh, you could go nuts out here just waiting for something to happen as far as community building goes there's a couple of interesting things been going on i've been hosting regularly now gosh it might be coming up on 13 months I've been doing that 13 horrors uh, for the dear listener who doesn't know what I'm talking about. 13 horrors is when uh, on the 13th of every month, an hour before midnight, Winnipeg time, I uh, put a call out to filmmakers and writers and comic book people. And we get together and we brainstorm, we story break a, a horror story and we race midnight. We try to, finish the treatment of the story before the bell tolls 12. Um, and that has been something that usually I did locally, you know, the years before the event, as we call it here on our podcast now. Um, I would get together at a restaurant. I'd text a few people who were around and I'd say, meet me late at night at this undisclosed location until the last moment. I'll let you know, come and meet me and we'll tell a scary story together. We take notes and that's that. Doing it online has meant that people from different cities have joined in. We record the conversation so everyone can have like a complete set of notes from what we're doing. Um, that part of community building, I feel, is something that conventions could easily host programming like that. Right. Right. Where a dozen creators get into a room and they record those people just being creative and then let the people like that's what people come to shows for. Right. Is to get close to a thing that they don't yet know how to do. And so much of comics, as um, Howard Chaikin would say, is aspirational. So many people who are interested in comics, wish they were making their own comics, and like the comics they imagine they themselves would make. And that's why the show floor is so exciting, because you see people with a pen, just on a piece of paper, make a whole world in front of you, and it just like the fire inside you just get stoked. I mean, I already make things for a living and I walk around the show floor and I feel like that. I can't imagine if you were just starting out or just uh, uh, creatively curious that uh, how that must feel, right? And that's all absent in a click-through website. And But it, I don't think it needs to be. And I don't know what the real answer is, except that you need people to be willing to share a little of themselves a little bit more um, but then, you know, and then I pivot the other way. Not everyone would want those 
fits and starts recorded. One of the reasons why conventions work so great is because it's over. It was in person and now it's over. Yeah. And so if you missed it, then you missed it and it, you missed it forever. So it makes it special. Yeah. How many book um, book ideas and, and projects have been started at that after convention meal and drinks where it's a bunch of artists from different cities get together, have a meal after a long day and just start riffing on some things and then, hey, we should do that. So many, so many projects have come from that. So many things. Yeah. And so, you know, trying to arrange mm -hmm. social events like that through Zoom or through whatever digital platform of your choice is, is tricky, but I think ultimately worthwhile. Now that I'm in the habit of gathering with certain groups um, on a semi-regular basis, it, it doesn't quite fill the gap of a in-person, in-person social event but it's like methadone, right? It's not the full hit, but at least it keeps you going. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Now uh, I shouldn't make light of drug use because I'm definitely not a drug user. <laughs> and I know people struggle with that, but it's hard, right? We're social animals and we need it. Um, how do you think our um, call went? We did a mythos and Inc uh, hosted a gathering of creatives as a way of launching a book. And it, it was interesting because it didn't feel like a commercial and all of us came yeah. on and we were just talking about the creative process of making our books. And it was like, Oh, by the way, these books are available soon, but that wasn't really what we were all doing. I really appreciated that aspect of it. How did you feel about that? Yeah, it was, um, I didn't really, yeah, I thought it, I thought it went well. I thought it was, it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, there was eight of us on the call, six of us. Yeah, eight, I think, in total. Yeah, including eight. Of, yeah. So, so my my problem was on my end, my internet was being a little slow, and so all the video stopped. And so I could hear everybody perfectly, but I couldn't see anybody. So I had no visual cues of when people were about to start talking or when they were done talking. So it was like being on a phone call with eight people at the same time. So I felt like I, it was hard to kind of jump in and out of the conversation. So technically, I, I had a bit of a misstep that night. But Interesting. See, I it, kept, was, it was great listening to everybody. I was talking to uh, some of the people on that call afterwards as a follow-up, and I was saying that one of the things I went into was this, like, no mind. It had been a while since I'd really dug into talking about rust and water. And mm -hmm. uh, a mnemonic device I use sometimes when you're put on the spot. So if you're in a creative field at all and you're asked to speak publicly about things at all, and eventually you're going to get sideswiped with come and talk about this thing in a intelligent, careful, protracted way with no preparation. Right. That's what is expected of you for media sound bites. And some days I'm good at it and some days I'm bad at it. So the days I'm good at it, I try to put a mental pin in. It. And I found myself reliving a moment where you and I were at a school visit talking about rust and water and what were our creative process? What was our inspiration? And I found myself almost like downloading that memory and replaying those answers to these to questions that are, you know, you often get the same kinds of questions. And what's interesting about this, now that it's all put coming together for me, you and I have answered those questions so many times, I'm used to the pattern of you jumping in and filling in things when I would pause and you weren't doing that. 
And now I, and I kept saying, why don't you tell the story of so-and-so? Like, I felt like I was prompting you in a way that I normally don't. I was like, why don't you tell that story, Justin? Then you jump in and fill in all the blanks. But that visual cue now I realized was the reason. My big, long, my head always leans back when I'm pontificating, like I'm going to, like I'm going to cue someone else in to talk, right? Without my giant Adam's apple waving at you, you didn't know that I was about to, <laughs> right? Makes sense. And and I was, I was scared about like leaving the session and trying to get back in because not only were we recording, we were also live streaming and people were asking questions. So I was worried that if I tried to, you know, close my browser and come back in that I, I wouldn't be allowed back in or it would like screw everybody up. Um, so I did, I did my best, but, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of cool too. It was just listening to like everybody else. It's like being, um, I don't know. It's just like another podcast you get to listen to before anybody else and every once in a while chip into. So. Yeah, it wasn't, it was a little embarrassing. The number of those creatives that pointed at us as being like, you know, supportive or foundational. I don't think of us as uh, really, <laughs> it sounds awful, but I don't think of myself as being that encouraging to other creative. <laughs> no, I think you're pretty encouraging. I think, I think, what we did is we just kind of luckily started this right around when the world kind of really started to ramp up on uh, like create, you know, create our own graphic novels and indie comics and comic conventions. Like I think we were just kind of waiting and ready when that all started. Um, and so we were just kind of part of that first wave. Yeah, I guess and I so. think a lot, we would go, we would host for the dear listeners sake, we would host a lot of making comics workshops at the studio and things like that. And we would always begin, you know, often, even when we promoted it, not with, Hey, we know all the answers, but Hey, we screwed up a whole bunch of times. Do you want to come hear about it? That was kind of like the tack we would take. It's like, here's all the things that we didn't do because we didn't know to do it properly. That's what we'll share with you. Not like the perfect roadmap, but instead all the potholes that we lost tires in along the way. Yeah, And um, I, I guess I didn't realize uh, at the time, you know, that that was as useful as I hoped it would be. So that was a nice surprise to hear those nice things from people. But, you know, that whole team like uh, 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 Stephen Call and uh, Lyndon Rochenka and Zach Schuster, they don't need anybody's help making stuff. They are quite um, capable of making whole worlds all on their lonesome. So it was nice to feel part of that general want someone with your experience i don't know whether to feel flattered or not what exactly would i be looking for a floating space monster it was it was kind of bizarre because dragon annie was 2016 so like five years ago and the the podcast was kind of oriented around that publication but rust and water yeah Ru what did i say dragon Annie, which is on your oh, mind because yeah, that's sorry. our newest book which that, yeah sorry rust and water yeah Five years ago, 2016, Rust and Water came out. And we, you know, like, I haven't, it's been on my table and I've had it around, but I haven't been interviewed or talked about it in so long. So it was kind of like, you know, the Wayback Machine. If somebody's, yeah, it was just a different time in my life. I was a different artist. And now suddenly having to, to talk about and think about like all the things that were going on with that project. You know, you're just so used to talking about, what's new and what's next It's not that often that people want to know about that project from four or five years ago. So I get all my experience with that kind of stuff. Um, 
vicariously through other much more uh, prolific, intelligent, and talented authors that I have the joy of having been associated with once in a while at literary events. Because like an author comes to a literary event and they often have a long backlist. And so if I'm standing beside them with my pretty short backlist, everything is sort of in my recent memory. Everything is like within reach within the last, you know, really in the last decade, which creatively is not that far of a stretch. But, you know, things near the end of that or the beginning of that decade feel faint and it's hard to like remember exactly my space when I was working on that. But I've I've sat beside authors that, you know, have 40 year careers and someone brings their first novel and is asking them, really specific <laughs> careful questions about like a a moment in a chapter in a book that they wrote 40 years ago and they're answering but for that like, that reader it's fresh for them they just yeah. read it they were right in that world and it's incredible to me and they you know obviously if someone has a 40-year career as an author and has done that signings they have some experience answering those questions i'm sure but i am always like wow i cannot believe you had such vivid recall of that project from so long ago and you know uh the answer i get from a lot when i ask when i'm like well when i I feel if i feel excited by it and so i ask one uh author once said to me anna gire actually said to me the stuff that excites author or readers is often the stuff that excited the author about writing it And that's why it's easy to remember. Right. Right. No one asks you a question like, why did you make the drapes blue on this page of this chapter? They're asking you about like the real meat and potatoes of the, of the story. And so I guess, I guess only time will tell Justin, if you or I are any good at this 30 years from now. I'm just thinking of all the time somebody's come up to my booth and asked like about a a specific piece. They describe something, a painting that they're pretty sure is mine, but they're not sure. And I'm kind of like struggling along with them, trying to remember. And I'm not sure if I've done a painting like that either. And, you know, and then, oh yeah, oh my God, I did do that like six years ago. I totally forgot about that piece. Well, and for you, that's, you know, six years ago, that could be as many as like, it might not be outside of saying like six or 700 paintings ago, right? Pro, I think I I do around 40 pieces a year. Okay, so I was thinking like around that. 100 for like every- okay, supporting. <laughs> yeah, well, think like 52 weeks in a year, I would say like every week and a half, two weeks, I've got a new piece. Um, and then like, I mean, books, like you, you know, that's quite a bit of artwork, but like yeah. individual paintings, I think about a week and a half, two weeks is my, when I'm pumping something new out. Okay, so I'm going to ask a question that I think requires for the listeners some context. I, of course, have been uh, working alongside Justin for a long time, so I've seen his process, and I know that in his, when we're traveling, the piece that you want to be working on, you write down, you draw, you sketch in your sketchbook. You and I both do this. We figure out compositions in little thumbnail illustrations, and then after a few trips on a few different airplanes, you settle in on the composition and then you get so you're held back because you're traveling or working. You get all like fired up to work on it and you get home and you just don't want to do anything but work on that piece. I've seen that. I've been that. I live that too. 
Yeah. How has that changed for you recently? And what is the, what is the drive now for you? Uh, I like, I still have that going on right now. What's instead of traveling, it's become commission work. Mm. I've got like three commissions on the go right now. And I'm really excited to get them done because then I get to jump over to my own work. So I still have those um, like exterior hurdles to get over before I get to do my own thing. And I think I like me personally, I need that. If I have nothing but my own projects and own time, then I tend to just spin my tires, and not get anything done. I, I take on freelance because I know it helps me get excited and get more motivated to do my own work. And, and this is just through trial and error. Like I've had periods in my career where I, I stopped taking on work and just, just wanted to work on my own thing and see where that could go. And that's usually when I get lazier and complacent and not as productive. But if I've got a lot of, you know, irons in the fire doing different things, taking on little jobs here and there. Um, right now I'm, I'm teaching a class every week. I've, I've got commissions for design, for a logo, for uh, a beer label, for, you know, like some other stuff that I'd never draw on my own and juggling in, in all that. I have my own stuff and my own stuff is really exciting because I can't just work on it. I have all these other things okay, so and I need have, those other things. You still have this like throttle that's holding you back from it. I've yeah. been feeling that too in a very different way. So here's my experience. Um, I've been working on some film stuff and working on a bunch of book stuff, you know, that is, uh, I say it as if it's like no big deal. They're big deals to me. I love all those projects, but they're kind of normal. They're like part of my regular schedule. I knew they were coming. I'm working on them anyway. After the event occurred, the travel portion I replaced with um, visiting. I visit a different school every morning remotely, and I run a classroom story with them, right? So they, I bring them prompts. They write stories. I give them another prompt. The story, you know, unfolds that way. But because of the age group, Justin, of these kids, when I will give a story idea, two things form in my head here's one that's age appropriate for you and here's one if it was an adult story like oh that monster would be so much more savage or oh this sad point would be so much sadder right like i feel myself doing that what is school appropriate versus what if there were no rules at all would i make and that's created a backstop of really wanting to make some pretty out there pretty scary really horrific stuff uh and that's not a feeling i'm used to is like working on a bunch of kids stuff and then generating all these scary ideas on the side which right. is you know i would never have been able to plan for that kind of stuff and i'm not sure if there's a psychologist out there that wants to uh dm me and let me know what's <laughs> wrong with me and why this is happening but that's what's been happening is that Usually we'd switch. We'd do a kid's project, then we'd do an adult project, then we, you know, but doing all this stuff concurrently and having none of it be released has, has meant that there's, you know, only so many gates that you can fit the stories through. It'd be interesting, uh, interesting to see what happens next. You can do one of two things. Outrun them or fight them. I am a hair's breadth, just a hair, like three pages away from finishing a big project for heavy metal magazine right now um which is our graphic novel the eye collector which is i guess 
unofficially officially announced by us um and they'll make an official announcement on their site soon um and that one's pretty scary and pretty weird and pretty dark but it's about i feel like at the beginning of the pandemic uh, pardon me the event i felt like it was about as scary as i was willing to go in a graphic novel project uh right. now i feel like it's maybe a five on what i'm capable of <laughs> because you worked on a bunch of kids stories the, the like true horror that i had to has... smooth out yeah i had to take <laughs> out everything scary and every time a scary idea would occur to me i'd be like well you know grade fours they don't need to live with an idea like that let's make it a little bit point it more at the curriculum make it a little more inclusive make it a little better for everyone to share together you know like you remember your uh you focus on your audience Right? right. And what the audience needs is more important than what the storyteller uh, wants to say when you're in front of an audience. And so, uh, but it's sort of putting a little weight on the scale of like every time I hold back, every time I edit myself, every time I'm like, hmm, probably shouldn't say that. It's like built a reservoir, like a little drip in a reservoir of some really, really horrible, scary stories. So I'm excited to. Uh, have the summer to work on those. I've set a goal for myself and with some collaborators. Uh, we write these short stories called the Once Lands, and they're they're a little bit Conan and a little bit H.P. Lovecraft kind of mixed together, uh, just for the dear listeners' sake. So they're pretty violent and they're pretty scary, and we all work on our own little short stories and then we put them in these collections. I have a feeling that I have a pretty horrific once lands tale that is going to come out of me this summer as a result of all the uh, uh, inhibitors that have gone on to working with kids for, you know, the last seven months. <laughs> so it's almost like, yeah, sometimes, and that's like me with the, the commissions, like sometimes you need those restrictions to hold you back from just being free to do whatever that gets you the best work. Um, I was listening to, I, I've been listening to a good audio book and it was talking about a writer who had like horrible writer's block. And then he got, um, it's a sci-fi one. So he got kind of kidnapped and had to work in like a slave camp for a while. And because he was doing menial work every day, all day, he was coming up with the best stories of his life. Whereas before he was just lounging around coming up with stories here and there because he had to do menial work for, he thought the rest of his days his like his imagination worked overtime because it was his only escape trying to help him escape yeah well um, Stephen King has a quote about that about yeah. remembering that life is supposed to support yeah, art and not the other way around because it's supposed to remind us that there's no such thing as a menial task cleaning your house is important right going out taking the garbage out is important um, teaching your kid to read you know cleaning up dog poop whatever it is you got in your life that you don't like that stuff is important because it makes your life work and if your life is working you have some time to make art so i'm down with that i've been working a lot more with my hands around the house and doing that kind of stuff as so many others have since the event and it's actually i think it's been good for my creative side for sure i find on days where i i have nothing on my schedule other than to sit and draw it's a little bit hard to get into the groove. If I have a morning where I have to run a couple errands or do a couple tasks and like walk the dog 
and I can't just get right into drawing, then by the time I can get into it, I'm way more motivated to, to kind of stick with it. But if I have nothing else around my day other than make a new painting, that's a struggle, oddly enough, you know? Yeah, because time is- Stupid brains. Time is a commodity. And if it feels like it's been pulled away from you, then its value increases because now it's rarer. And so you're gonna spend it the way you really wanna be spending it. You don't piss away that time. I think it's an important, important step. Before we start recording, we were talking about how it's kind of exciting with this backlog of artwork, different arenas and different crowds of people are like dig different pieces of artwork. And it's hard to know what's gonna do well where until you just kind of get out there and do that. And so the specific arenas that I had in my mind were comic conventions. And then we also do kind of craft sales or more like um, like artisanal markets, like kind of stuff like that. And then um, like book touring, bookstores and school tours and stuff like that. And those three different arenas like vastly different kinds of artwork. And some pieces will sell really well at Comic-Cons and won't sell at all um, when we go to a craft sale and vice versa. But it's, it's you know, we, I have all these pieces that I think will do well here, but maybe not there. It's but funny you say that. It's, it's so hard to tell. And the other thing that we've noticed. It's funny you say that because um, a whole bunch of pieces I've been working on, I've realized fit. Okay, I'll, I'll back up a bit. When we go to certain shows, you start to realize where the lack is, yeah. what people are interested and what you're missing that would make that work really well. Now I'm working on stuff in absence of those yeah. shows and I realize, oh, this would work there. Oh, this would work at a show like that. Oh, this would go. I feel so much better with the catalog of work I have that I could spread across all those arenas than I did when we were actually going to all those arenas. Were you focusing more on on one, like just you were a little more focused and now you can, you were focused on selling and now you're more focused on the artwork? Do you think that's it or? I, I think it's perspective. It's like I've made more work without any, without any uh, sales channel in mind. And now I look back and right. I often do and say, what is the place that this will work best? Um, you know, we try lots of stuff and we will continue to try lots of stuff moving forward. Lots of ways and lots of avenues to uh, bring our work to the people. But uh, now I feel like any of those places I go, I know I could go into the catalog of work and say, okay, I'm bringing these 25 pieces and these five books and that'll, that's, I'm ready for this arena. Um, whether or not it'll prove to be true well, that'll remain to be seen, but I feel a lot more um, uh, stacked with goods, if you will. Just confirm it. A rocket similar to yours is heading in our direction. I hope it won't crash. Don't worry. I have the best men on gravitation control. The other big element here is seeing artwork in person versus seeing it on a screen is, is such a huge difference and i don't think many artists realize that you know when they 
they post stuff online and it gets a big reaction and then they print it out and bring it to a show and nobody looks twice at it. Yeah. That happens just as often as nobody looks on it online and they can't keep it at their table at a, at a Comic-Con. There is like, there is no correlation to online popularity um, to sales. It's super weird. Yeah. Zero because I, <laughs> you know, and I can speak to that pieces that I will post online. They don't, they don't light a fire under the, uh, under the algorithms or the people sharing them or the people liking them. But then I take them to the show floor and, you know, make a living off of those same pieces. So it's very different depending on, um, yeah. And I'd be curious, I'm sure somewhere, somehow, some internet guru, some programmer could figure out algorithmically why that's true <laughs> i don't know why it's true but it's 100 percent true is it maybe that we don't uh, mock up enough artwork on walls like uh you know a lot of artists will take a photo photograph of a nice room and mock up what that piece would look like hanging on the wall should that become more of a standard practice i wonder i wonder i'm i mean i see it enough it must work otherwise people would, wouldn't keep doing it but I always, I've started to recognize the same stock photos that yeah. people are using as that photo of the thing on the wall. And then it just feels disingenuous to me, but I'm sure the average consumer doesn't notice the difference. Mm. Right. It's like the, I wonder if it's similar to the effect of a came with the frame, right? Right. Empty frames sell less than frames that have pictures of strangers in them. And people, right. They figured that out a long time ago, and that's why pictures of strangers are in all those new photo frames. Which just is just seeing it bizarre. It's, seeing it for it what is. it's designed to do, right? Seeing its real use. And it's so much easier to imagine that when they see the piece of artwork on the table versus through the screen. They can yeah. imagine where they're going to hang it or how, like, well, they can see how it looks in person. That's the other thing, like you like print the actual print quality and like the, is it matte finish? Is it glossy? Like, is it like canvas? Like they don't really, it's really hard to, to know what you're going to get when it's actually printed and shipped to you, you know? Totally. Well, in real life is full resolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, books too, like it, it makes me, there's like a hole in my heart. The fact that I haven't been able to watch anybody flip Slip. through Dragon Nanny. In I know, person. I was thinking that exact, dude, I was thinking that too. <laughs> watching a little, like watching a person's face light up as they discover something flipping randomly through the book. Man, that's the greatest feeling. And even if they hate it, sometimes it's the opposite. Like that look of disgust, <laughs> like, oh, this is not for me. I still love that. Like it made you feel something, right? Right. That's so incredible. Why don't you see it in person? Man. Yeah, there's something There's something to our equation that's missing now. We're just making artwork and it's, we don't get that interaction with a, with a customer, with a viewer anymore. And it's so filtered through screens and the internet. It's just, it's not the same. So I, I find myself like just, you know, kind of reliving moments at conventions when people can like actually react in person to, to my artwork and how much I miss that. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's really part of it. There's the age old saying that the viewer completes the artwork, 
Yeah, finishes the artwork. Yeah, totally. Right. And so much of our experience at shows is literally watching that completed circuit in front of us. And I mean, it speaks to our egos, right? Like you love it. There's no way to deny if you see a positive reaction of your work in somebody else, it makes you feel good and it makes you feel proud and, you know, whatever. So, yes. Am I a little selfish in that I want to see that? Truly, I guess I am. But there's, you know, there's that old, what is it? Ubuntu, right? The the human in me sees the human in you. And that is how we interact. That's also what it's at play there, right? I've put a lot of my private time and energy into making that thing. And to watch it spill out and connect with somebody means that the time was not wasted. That the time was not... Uh, you know, lost that it, it validates the entire experience of making a thing when you see it connect with somebody. And it only takes one, like if one in a yeah. thousand people it connects to, I'm good. It's well, I'm ready. The, uh, like the opposite too, when you put your heart and soul into something and nobody reacts to it, nobody likes it. That kind of lights a fire under my butt too, to like, okay, I missed the mark with this. I'm going to try again. Like I'm going to make a, another piece that's like along the same vein but different i'm gonna fix my mistake yeah and i'm not getting i'm not getting that either i don't know if you know this piece is a mistake or not you know because i can't i can't see if it flops or does well and and to the dear listener too what's important to realize is that when we're talking about this there are certain things that you can tell from a person's response because color is emotion in the psychology of a human being right so when people are responding to certain combinations of colors and certain compositions that you know work because you've it's almost like the scientific method you know how your art evokes certain elements and when it misses you know oh i need a little bit more color saturation i need to like in my experience I have to bring up the contrast, make the blacks a little deeper, make the central color pop a little bit brighter. Like those are the things I see in people's faces as their eyes scan over the piece, right? I actually get an education about how to be a better artist when I see that moment occur. And I can say through experimentation that I know it to be true because when I make those changes and I do 30 shows a year and I sell hundreds of pieces of artwork when I make those changes according to how people respond. It's a science as much as it's an art, if you know your own process. Oh man, now I'm all fired up. I just want a show. Can we just have a show? <laughs> oh my gosh. Or uh, a gallery event too. We've, we've got this great downtown Winnipeg space that's, that's great for galleries. And I recently, um, that the Pokemon piece that I just finished, I printed it the as big of a canvas that I've ever printed before, um, 24 by 48. So it's oh, like, my, oh man, it's oh, massive. God. It's like almost like a small door. Um, <laughs> but, and, and it's the coolest thing to like put on display somewhere, but I can't, I can't do that yet. I can only oh. take picture pictures and put them online. And that doesn't convey it's how cool yeah that tactile feeling so i haven't you know i personally haven't even been at the studio i think for at least 60 days oh man 
Like it's been, I was realizing that the other day I was looked at my calendar as when, you know, like you have your to-do list or whatever. I was flipping back and then I was doing a little math and I'm like, it's been two months since I've actually set foot inside the studio. It, uh, my heart nearly broke in half. <laughs> well, it misses you. It's a good place. It is a good place. So <laughs> when summer comes, the boys and I are going to come do a bunch of sleepovers and art making and we're going to kick you out of there for a while. I think. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be good. Well, I think that Dan would be, if he was here, he's here in spirit. Sigma, he didn't die, ladies and gentlemen. No he's, no, he's just not here for the podcast. He would be tapping his watch and reminding us that your time is precious and that you have comic projects of your own to go and work on. So this is Gregory Kamichak encouraging you to join the fight and make comics. Mm-hmm.